Hi, friends. You're tuned in to Legal Means Business, a podcast by Leeway. We are joined by some amazing guests who help us identify how to take your legal function and career to the next level. I'm your host, Steph Smith, and we're talking all things legal ops and legal tech, as well as other critical skills needed to help you thrive in the evolving in-house arena. Don't forget, you can watch us on YouTube or listen on the go through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you enjoy the conversation, please do hit subscribe and let us know what you think on social. So companies who use distributed ownership, I think aim for speed and for excellent decisions. So basically the idea is that by allowing people who are the closest to the context of a decision to make that decision without creating, you know, a level of like supervision or, or um, hierarchy that, that requires multiple reviews of the same question by people who are further away from the context, you're basically allowing people to make very quick decisions and so you're allowing the company to grow very quickly. And our, our CEO usually says that like the prerequisite for distributed ownership is, is to define what excellence means at the company, right? And basically you want to hire people who aim for excellence and then you want to trust them to be excellent in their decision making. And so you don't, you don't like you hire people who you don't feel like you have to micromanage or supervise as closely. These days, Especially in the tech space, legal functions have to scale fast, but often their headcount doesn't grow at the rate of the business. So how can you keep pace, deliver sound legal outcomes and create real business value? One way for a legal team to focus on the higher value work is to embed and use distributed ownership. I know, I know, letting go of control over conventional legal matters might seem a little bit scary. But through this episode, I'm confident that you'll be convinced. We are joined by Marion Bergeret, the General Counsel at digital health insurance company, Allen. Marion is a tech product lawyer and has studied and worked across numerous continents. She has hands-on experience in startup operations, HR, fundraising and m and And today, she'll share how she and the team at Allen have scaled their legal function by focusing on the distributed ownership of legal. It's a good one, so listen in and let me know what you think. Well, hello, Marianne, welcome to the show. Hi, <laughs> <Nice> Steph. <laughs> it's lovely to have you with us, um, and I'm excited to hear what we've got to talk about today, so it's quite exciting. I suppose we have listeners from all over the world, so it would be great if we could start off um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself um, and the cu- current company that you're working for as well. Yeah, sure. Well, so I'm originally French, but I, I did my law studies in the UK and, and in the US and California. My parents worked in tech and, and the US is where I kind of chose to dig deeper into um, the relationship between law and technology, originally from more like a public policy angle. And I was super interested in human rights. And then I moved to private practice for a few years. So I worked for various tech clients as a lawyer um, at Baker McKenzie. And then after a few years of that, I quit my job to go learn to code, which was really interesting. I really loved it. Mm-hmm. I had no idea if I still wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I really wanted to build things and to sort of be on the more technical side. But ultimately, I guess I, I was sort of, you know, 
I didn't leave law entirely, and I, I joined a startup as their first legal counsel. And the startup was called Snips. They were a voice recognition startup. Um, so I, I did machine learning. It was like privacy technology, beginning of blockchain, and um, interesting things in that sort of sphere. And ultimately, the company got acquired by Sonos, which is an American uh, speaker company. And so after doing the M&A deal and the post-deal integration into the, the U.S. company, um, I, I actually moved on to Allen, where I, I work today. And Allen is, is the European digital health partner. Um, it's a company that was valued about 1.4 billion euros last year when we fundraised. And I was the first lawyer there, and now we're a team of five. Oh, wow. So it's grown quite a lot in the last year or last so. few months actually like, I didn't grow like as soon as I got there I did I kind of it took me a while to start recruiting but now we're, we're um, a, a, a nice team now yeah oh cool that's amazing and the coding part is really interesting as well what what persuaded you to to do that Actually, I didn't, it was, it was like a holiday for me. I just had no, you know, I, I was working really intensively at, at the, at Baker McKenzie and mm -hmm. it was just very hard. I, I could tell that, you know, I, I wasn't going to stay in that environment forever, even, mm -hmm. you know, for all, like I learned there and, and the relationships I built there, I loved it, but it just wasn't, it didn't feel quite right, but I didn't really know what else would feel like more like better um mm -hmm. and uh i'd always had like sort of an affinity for for i don't know like more technical things um my sort of a level equivalent in france i had i'd specialized in maths and science like i was not at all like a a very like literary lawyer kind of person i was super interested in science and feeling enabled and empowered to learn new things. And so I decided to go do a boot camp. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people do coding boot camps, like the population is super diverse, it's sort of people who didn't do coding at university or anything and just have, you know, you just are, it's more like teaching you to learn than it mm -hmm. is teaching actual skills. So I just discovered how to teach myself. It's more like that, that's, that's the main learning probably. Yeah. From that boot camp. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And then it kind of feels like your move to in-house is kind of a merge of those two worlds. It, kind of. That's kind of how it felt. And that's why ultimately the roles that I found after that boot camp got me back into law, it, you know, even though I had kind of thought I was leaving law. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I think these roles made me realize that I could build things as a lawyer. Didn't I didn't mm -hmm. have to go into you know, a technical role or a business role to, to be part of the team who builds. So, so that's sort of, I guess you're right. Yeah. The segue between yeah. both worlds. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And, and when you, when you left university, were you aware of the kind of different routes that you could go down or was it very much, oh, you kind of thought private practice was the kind of go-to not really. I was I was very aware of I, I I studied at Berkeley and Berkeley is a very like public policy oriented school. So I knew there was private practice and I knew there was like public policy work, which is very developed in the US where, you know, NGOs and organizations are well funded and have important roles to play in society. But I also knew I wanted to go back to Europe. And those there, there aren't really sort of as many 
you know, non-pub like non-public institutions like that 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 actually have the means to to tackle big problems. And so that didn't feel like an option. But I wasn't like super educated on in-house roles. I only knew about super traditional in-house roles, and I knew I didn't want that. I also mm-hmm. think there's. I also knew I would get really good training in private practice, and and that's something that that I've benefited from hugely. Mm-hmm. So I don't regret going going into private practice at all. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's great to have such well a, the whole the whole shebang really in terms of experience, so that you can kind of pull out the different things that you've learned along the way. So that's pretty cool. Um, today we're going to be talking about distributed ownership, which is quite a cool concept, I think, because um, obviously you've been you've been working with that sort of uh, initiative and concept at Allen. Where did you first hear about the concept of distributed ownership? I guess like maybe the concept of distribution in general, I heard about from more a technical perspective, like a distributed ledger and blockchain or it's basically a distributed system is a system where control is deconcentrated so that there's no like single point of failure. And then distributed ownership is a similar idea, right, where everyone's an owner and no one person or group of people make decisions. And that's something I've, I've, I've witnessed in sort of business reading, business books, you know, like um, it's something that's central to Netflix's culture. And then when I was, you know, getting to know Alan a bit more um, is when they explained how they apply it internally and what the benefits are as a company, you know, when you apply it as like, a rule that guides everyone's behavior. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's when I I started really working on it. Mm-hmm. At least yeah. internally, I guess. Like we're realizing yes. that I, I applied it already, but, but sort of I did it in a deeper way after that. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. And why, obviously you mentioned like Netflix, for example, and lots of um, larger and perhaps more quite tech-driven companies are using distributed ownership. Why is it important for in-house legal teams? Um, and what are the benefits? So companies who use distributed ownership, I think, aim for speed and for excellent decisions. So basically, the idea is that by allowing people who are the closest to the context of a decision to make that decision without creating you know, a level of like supervision or, or um, hierarchy that, that requires multiple reviews of the same question by people who are further away from the context, you're basically allowing people to make very quick decisions. And so you're allowing the company to grow very quickly. And our, our CEO usually says that like the prerequisite for distributed ownership is, is to define what excellence means at the company, right? And basically you want to hire people who aim for excellence and then you want to trust them to be excellent in their decision making. And so you don't, you don't like you hire people who you don't feel like you have to micromanage or supervise as closely. And so I guess... The interest in doing that at a company is is scaling quickly, which is why you know tech companies have come up with this um, as a way to to grow quickly and make decisions uh, very fast. Applied to to legal, I guess it's kind of the opposite of in-house lawyers acting as like ticket desks or like support teams. So you're basically, you're not handling all legal issues for the internal clients that you have. And instead, you're asking every team member who, you know, lawyer or not, to own the problems they work on fully and 
that means they own the problem fully, whether the problem has a legal component to it or not. Um, and, and you're basically asking them to dig deep and think about the legal issues themselves. So integrate sort of legal reasoning into their decision making as if that knowledge were their own. So making that knowledge their own, digesting it, and then understanding how it fits with all of the rest of the context that they have that maybe the legal team doesn't even have, right? Like, because we're working on so many different things at the same time across the company, whereas they're working on that very specific problem and they have the very specific and complete perspective on it. And so you're saying basically if you're a product manager, you're going to have to, you know, look at marketing and design and things like that. But you're also going to have to look at whether your problem is, you know, regulated or um, if there are contracts to write to sell the thing you're building to clients and things like that. And you're going to own that as part of your project, part, part of your build um, intention, right? Mm -hmm. um, and sorry, I think you asked what the benefits were, I guess. like Yeah, probably, yeah. Probably already identified them. But, but basically, if you applying distributed ownership to legal work has some really concrete benefits for the legal team and for the company. So like, I think the main one is that the end result is a more legally aware team in general. So instead of having five lawyers at a company with 450 employees, you're basically aiming for like 200 legally aware employees and five lawyers working on specific value-added things or creating resources to deepen the knowledge of all of those like many lawyers who are at the company. And then you're also creating more scalability. You're creating resources to enable teams to own legal problems rather than tackling them all ourselves. So like as a team of five, we just can't handle as many issues as people can actually handle if they have basic legal knowledge, right? And then you, I think another benefit is you become more aligned with the company's risk profile as a whole. So instead mm -hmm. of having a legal team that kind of represents, you know, the higher risk awareness at the company, um, and that's a role that I don't, I don't think is super comfortable or fun. Um, instead of that, you're basically working with product teams to make decisions that are, uh, you know, business driven decisions that are that the company backs entirely, and l legal reasons aren't a blocker because the legal team presented them. They they only become blockers if you know the the product actually carries too many risks, including maybe legal, right? So it's just part mm -hmm. of a, a more like a whole appreciation of a problem rather than a focus on like legal risk and sort of a you know police role that, that some legal teams might be given at certain companies. So in an in-house legal context, distributed ownership means that the responsibility of legal not only lies within the legal department, but also with anyone who interacts with legal matters. So pretty much everyone within the business. Of course, high risk, high value legal work needs to stay within the legal department. But decisions regarding lower value routine matters can be owned by those who are closest to the situation, customer, partner, etc. Distributed ownership allows people who are the closest to the context to take charge, resulting in faster, better informed decisions. Whether that's sales or partnerships, HR or procurement, if you provide them with the skills and knowledge they need for these foundational legal matters, 
they'll not only feel more empowered and more invested in a legal culture, but you'll also free up significant time within your legal team to focus on the work that matters most, allowing you to scale faster and more effectively. I love the whole idea as well of distributed ownership kind of enabling the the company to foster this legal culture business-wide and it takes as you said it, it enables scale because it takes a lot of the kind of low value tasks off legal's plate by empowering wider teams I guess to I presume it's one equipping with equipping other teams and other individuals across the business with the knowledge and then two they can obviously make use of that so it doesn't need to come exactly yeah to the legal team yeah so cool and yeah the idea that it it enables scale it just makes a lot of sense really doesn't it (laughs) totally it can be a little scary because you know Mm. legal like everyone makes it sound so serious like legal work can only be done by lawyers but actually Mm -hmm. there's a lot of it that you can teach people and they can start thinking about it themselves just like they would any other thing they're exploring right like it's just Mm -hmm. part of the um, materials they work with after a while yeah, totally. I love the legally aware phrase that you used. That's pretty cool. How, how would you, I imagine that reduces a lot of friction as well between different teams as well, because obviously traditionally legal's been in a bit of a silo. So so working this way presumably integrates legal Completely. more into the business. And that's what I meant by, you know, these are roles and company cultures in which I feel that legal really builds with the rest of the team and we're not siloed we use the same tools we you know we're part of the same like road mapping exercises and things like that we don't we don't don't like receive tickets that we then handle in our own little legal room and then mm-hmm. you know we, we don't just sign like write contracts after the fact sort of thing um, yeah so it's been it's been really really interesting working as part of that culture actually yeah so cool love it and what does distributed ownership look like at Allen then um, so it's something that every person at Allen is is taught to to apply. You know, we we test like compatibility with distributed ownership at the recruitment stage. Like it's a super important value for us. It's one of the tenets cool. of our culture. So it's not just within the legal team, right? Like this is something that works well also because when the legal team pushes people to own legal problems, people who work at Allen are ready to take on, to take that challenge on, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not like we decided unilaterally that we would force people to tackle legal issues. They signed up for it. So yeah. so that's great. So there's a, a really important principle, Alan, that like you should always dig deeper and never shy away from complexity or, you know, you should ex- like want to challenge expertise, even if it's not your own. And, you know, the, the principle that with a sort of a hacker's mindset, you can teach yourself anything in three hours and then probably ask some really smart questions about something, even if someone else is telling you something based on 15 years of experience. Right. So so that's like a super empowering principle. And it makes mm-hmm. it really easy to work with people at Allen and to push for these sorts of things. In terms of examples of how we do it, I guess like maybe something pretty concrete, like a really legal process, like normally people who sign contracts would ask the legal team to review their contracts. We think that 
there's real value in, in people who are negotiating contracts to actually reading them. You know, like someone will come to us and ask us to review something and then we're not sure what the, the actual business deal, actually, like the details of it, what they are, what the dependencies we have internally might be. And so we can read a contract and make sure it's sound, but we can't really detect any sort of discrepancy between what was discussed and agreed and then what's written in the contract, for instance. We think the contract owner is the best person to do that. And so what we've done is we've created some guidelines that are kind of like a structured review of any type of contract. So there are sections that only apply to certain types of contracts but they guide any non-legally versed person to read the contract with sort of a more critical eye and to check sort of the basics of whether the business deal is reflected in this contract and then to appreciate the sort of risk presented by the contract. So maybe in terms of the overall value of the contract, how easy it is to terminate it or how committed we are. And all of those things create a sort of picture so they can they can understand what risks they're actually taking and then either feel more relaxed about it. They usually don't feel relaxed about it because when they understand that that, that would mean that, le that the legal team won't review the contract at all, then they, they start taking it really seriously. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, there are small contracts that we really don't need to to review or contracts that are easy to get out of where we think, well, if there's a problem, then we could just leave. And then there are contracts that are more sensitive. Like if if um, the contract involves processing health data, we're going to be super careful and ask them to involve someone from the legal team. Similarly, if, if it's a multi-million euro contract and we're committing for three years, we're probably going to want to involve someone from legal to have a closer look. But other than that, basically we're saying, you can review this contract with these guidelines. What they do is they do it in writing. So it also creates a documented version of that review for mm -hmm. later, right? Like super useful for the legal team, but also for them to remind themselves what the main points of the contract actually were. Mm -hmm. And then we ask them to ask someone else to have a look at it. So maybe a more experienced colleague or someone different, and then they can usually discuss it. And we also try to empower them to negotiate and iterate with their counterparty. So um, usually they'll, they'll, you know, people will, people's reflex will be to come to legal and say, wait, this thing is worded in a funny way. Like, is this normal? And, you know, the thing I try to tell them and I've written out in these guidelines is if you don't understand something that's written in the contract, it's poorly written. Like ask mm -hmm. to rewrite and make it clear in a way that you understand and feels completely unambiguous to you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not about, so it's basically a mix of empowering them to find, you know, to, 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 to read the main points of a contract, documenting that for the company's own interest to be sort of more protected, creating a sort of a, a review loop with, with a second pair of eyes, and I guess just filtering the things where we could really add value from the things where it's just common sense and things should be readable by anyone. Yeah, totally. So cool. It sounds like there's a lot of, there's, you know, sensible processes in place to keep, to, to reduce or mitigate risk where possible as well. So it just seems like a, a sensible approach. <laughs> Is that a fair statement, I would say? I don't think it's a revolutionary approach at all. I think it's, it's completely, it's, it's very easy to implement provided people don't push back from 
making that extra effort in the first place. Because, you know, it's easier for them to say, oh, I just received this contract, didn't even open it, just Mm -hmm. sent it to legal. What we think is it's actually much better for the business if they are actually reading the contract and working on it. Yeah. And and if they accept that, if that's the premise we're working on, which is great because at Alan, it's the case, then, Mm -hmm. then it works pretty well. And it's yeah. And you made a great point around it kind of being embedded in the culture. And so it feels like not just with distributed ownership, but with any kind of operational or mindset type thing, if it's embedded in the culture and, you know, you're keeping those values in mind during the hiring process, it makes everything like this a bit easier, I think. Completely. And also if you embed, you know, if you if you also are allowed to tell people when they're not focusing on the right things, right? And so we have a strong culture of feedback. We're quite direct. And so it's it's very easy for me to also say like when someone does come to me to tell them, well, I think you can review this. And and also, mm-hmm. you know, try not to, like I always try not to be too harsh and understand that people may, might be slightly intimidated or, or, or they might be new and not used to doing things that way. You know, if you've worked differently at a company for 10 years prior to joining this company, um, mm-hmm. it, it just makes sense. So, so we try to really support them and be really positive around telling them, you know, you can actually do this. Like, it's not that we don't want to do it. It's that y- you should do it and you'll do it even better than we would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a really important point to make. It's not like legal teams avoiding work. It's mm-hmm. actually trying to place the, like, to, to understand where that work can be best done and where the value actually lies. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like it leads to better business outcomes, which is pretty cool and quite empowering for the person doing the work as well. Exactly. I think after the first time they do it, when they Mm -hmm. realize that actually they can then, you know, lead their negotiations and sign their contracts autonomously, it's actually very rewarding. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's that's central to our culture, too, is that we want to hire really smart people. And part of distributed ownership is that we can trust the really smart people we hire. But it's also that really smart people feel rewarded and stimulated if they're mm-hmm. trust, if they have that trust and they can ha- have that autonomy and make decisions. Right. Yeah, totally. That ownership leads to you mentioned it like accountability so that they want to do a good job if they know legal's not going to check it they're going to double check it and they're going to get the the second person to to check it and things like that. So it feels like there's just multitudes of benefits to it in terms of like employee retention and finding meaning in the work and things like that as well. The whole culture works for employee retention for sure, not just with legal, Mm -hmm. but yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Distributed ownership is a cultural matter. So you need to encourage your company to embrace distributed ownership as a competitive advantage. Tech companies and startups have efficiency and leanness at the forefront. They want decisions to be made quickly and for there to be fewer bottlenecks. When communicating with people and trying to convince them to adopt this approach, be sure to articulate the business value. For example, the business value might include the fact that it helps remove friction, which streamlines processes and helps deals close faster. And It results in better business outcomes because those closest to the context are empowered to make the decision. In essence, distributed ownership works best when it's more widely adopted. So if you need to, spearhead this approach and create buy-in by articulating the business impact. And what are some of the 
practical steps that legal teams or could take to implement and embed um, distributed ownership? If it's not really something they've been working on yet, what should they be thinking about? I think if it's not, so the, the tough part is probably like starting something from legal that's mm. not, you know, something that's culturally accepted throughout the company. And so I guess like some simple steps uh, can really, really help. So the first thing I try to do is like try to make anything I create or write reusable. So say instead of answering one person's question, you like create a frequently asked questions section on that type of problem um, and you share it with the whole company or anyone who's you know interested instead of answering a question in email to one person sort of thing. Similarly, um, if you're reviewing one contract, maybe you create guidelines or or you know context to allow people to understand. You know, like if you're reviewing an NDA, for instance, NDAs are pretty straightforward and not a huge risk for companies in general provided like there you know five points that are super important in an NDA. So instead of just reviewing everyone's NDAs and then not reading the things that you mention need to be changed or are acceptable, then maybe you create a checklist with you know the five things to look for in an NDA and the like three versions of those five things that you're used to coming across. And then you can tell people like this is why I look at this and then they can, you know, if they turn out to read an NDA that doesn't say exactly what you had planned in the checklist, they can still understand the rationale behind it and then make an educated guess as to whether that sounds okay or not. So like that sort of thing I think is easy to push for. Then I guess I would always try to push back as much as possible when you're asked for a quick review of something at the very last stage of a process. Because that's mm. usually when people are trying to sort of divest responsibility onto legal to make a final call and they're mm. kind of scared. Um, and it's totally understandable. But the problem is, you know, the legal team's going to make a legal decision. Even if we try to take business considerations into into account and things like it, it just sounds weird that the the person who owns that business decision isn't able to integrate legal considerations into their business decision, right? And that we shouldn't mm -hmm. do the opposite. So if, if you're asked for something like that, that sounds like someone's trying to avoid responsibility, try to empower them instead and say, okay, I'm going to give you my point of view, or I'm going to give you this information, but you should take it into account. I won't decide for you. It's not a veto. It's not a, I'm not giving you permission. It's not like, oh, legal said I could. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so I, I would always try to avoid that kind of situation and, and divert it back into something that the owner actually decides. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the third thing that's easy to implement is to be quite patient and, and educational. So similar to maybe my first two points, actually, but some people are actually intimidated by legal legal work or legal jargon and just need to be empowered. So if you mm -hmm. just explain things in a simpler way or tell them what you would look for and show them that it's not based on your, you know, 10 years experience as a lawyer, but it's mm -hmm. just sort of common sense and um, then they might feel a little less uncomfortable looking at it. Yeah, I love that. Do you think distributed ownership leads to better designed legal products? Mm, interesting. Say? It definitely puts like the user at the center of of the legal, like any legal process. And I guess the user becomes, you know, we usually talk about like 
legal products or legal users is the legal team. And I think that's what a lot of legal texts maybe aim for is they, they try to t speak to the legal teams. Mm. And I guess our way of thinking about it is that legal problems aren't the legal team's problems. They're mm -hmm. the company's problems. And so we try to integrate with the tools that everyone uses and into the type mm -hmm. of processes that everyone uses. Um, and so we like try to, you know, in terms of like user experience for people who work at Allen, it's like as part of road mapping, there's mm -hmm. a question about legal resources needed on the problem or things like that. It's not like they have to go to a different mindset or, or framework or anything to, to think about these things. It's integrated. And I think, I think that brings legal processes closer to like a product mindset where, um, you know, things are just, yeah, probably designed a bit better with at least more exposure to other ways of doing things um, mm -hmm. that work in different, you know, I, yeah, it's just fewer silos and, and, and a more integrated version mm -hmm. of, of work of legal work yeah yeah totally I mean that's certainly our experience at leeway as well like you want to I mean the impact of for example legal tech solutions like leeway or any contract management platform you're going to experience a better impact if it's more widely adopted in the business so it's kind of putting things in place um to enable that I suppose and making sure that it is well designed and user um centric for not just the legal users for exactly. all business users. it's not like the legal team's back-end solution it's, yes you know it's not under the legal hood it's it's sort of something that that the whole team can use yeah totally and there's a whole other debate around the phrase legal tech but that's for another day <laughs> um <laughs> marion suggests three key steps to help legal teams implement and embed distributed ownership Firstly, try to make anything that you create reusable by the masses. If you're coming up against the same questions time and time again, try creating an accessible FAQs page. Or instead of reviewing a contract, write guidelines to show people how they can review that type of contract for themselves. Secondly, push back when you're asked for a quick review that is simply requested so the person can feel more comfortable with the decisions that they could and should really own. A true owner should involve you from the start so you can best add value, not only as the last step to solve their insecurities around this piece of work. To avoid this, help educate them and work on helping them make their own decisions based on the full context that they have, not just your legal point of view. Lastly, be supportive, patient and educational. Some people will be intimidated by legal jargon and just need to be empowered. You can own creating this accessible and less scary legal culture in the business. Are there any common challenges that you've come across when it comes to distributed ownership? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few, right? But again, like I think it's, it can be challenging for people who don't, aren't used to working that way, just from a cultural gap perspective. Mm. There's that feeling of intimidation with law, um, you know, that feeling of like law is for lawyers, like mm. how can I read a contract? I'm not comfortable with like the implications of this. And and so there's debunking that and, mm. and accepting that actually like, you know, just even me saying like NDAs are low risk 
I think would 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 scare a few people already. Um, mm-hmm. But so that if, means if there is if, risk. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if you work at a company where the company really backs the legal team in terms of risk taking, mm-hmm. then you can actually say that kind of thing because mm-hmm. they will look at it from a very practical perspective. Like how many NDAs have been litigated on in the past, you know, whatever years of everyone's collective experience at the company, like mm-hmm. probably zero to one compared mm-hmm. to the numbers of NDAs signed. So like, that's how I get to say like it's low risk and, and Alan backs me when I say mm-hmm. that. Right. Um, and it's not like I'm a separate like controller who who has who's 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 um whose responsibility is to identify all the risks and then like and like you know guard against them and enforce them on a company that kind of wants to go in a different direction so mm-hmm. it's a, anyway but but even even with that culture there's a some people can can start with a feeling of intimidation and 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 a sort of unusual risk aversion because they're not risk averse in their jobs but they're mm-hmm. risk averse when it comes to looking at legal work. I guess the second risk could be like just creating processes that are inefficient. So you think your guidelines are great and you think your contract review process is quicker than if you reviewed it yourself. But actually, if it's not well designed, if it's not well received, if people aren't you know supported in, in adopting it and things like that, like you're, you're going to have to iterate on it, um, get feedback and try to make it better so that it actually works. So I think there's a there's a there's a real challenge in designing these things so that they achieve the the, the goal that that you're aiming for, and and there's mm-hmm. a lot of humility on the legal team. Like that's why I'm never like too comfortable <laughs> talking about these things as if we had like invented this incredible system. Like there are inefficiencies everywhere and challenges every day, just making things work and trying to think about how to make them even better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is there is still always the question of like, are we taking too many risks? Are we lowering our visibility on risks being taken sort of at the company level, at every level of, of, mm. of the company? But again, like, uh, you know, we optimize for speed. We don't optimize for, you know, lack of risk. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a startup mentality. It's something we have to constantly think about as we grow and also... At Allen, like we process people's insurance data and health data. Those are things we take really seriously. So we're going to have, you know, different policies for different areas of the business. Um, And again, like working with really smart people and based on transparency, documentation and accountability, um, we get to, I think, I feel pretty comfortable with the level of risk we take as a company. And I feel Mm -hmm. pretty comfortable that we know about the risks that we're taking. I don't feel mm-hmm. like there are huge blind spots, but ultimately it's also, I can say that because I know that we hire people who we can trust to make really smart decisions and mm-hmm. to follow sort of the, the, the basic rules that we set, those being mainly documenting and being transparent about the decisions that you make so that mm-hmm. we can learn from any mistakes or like mitigate any consequences very soon after the mistake is made and for now that that's worked really really well yeah cool no no, that all makes sense and yeah again they're just kind of I suppose these challenges come with the territory especially in a kind of startup fast growing scaling tech company so yeah it's just finding that balance and, and setting setting the bar of what the business expects what the risk appetite is and then setting the standards for everyone who's who has distributed ownership, I suppose. 
And I suppose just to kind of tie it all together, what has happened as a result of, of distributed ownership at Allen? Um, How has it impacted yourself, the legal team, um, and of course the wider business? Well, I think distributed ownership in general has both allowed us to attract really great talent. As I said, like smart people feel rewarded when they are given responsibility. Um, it's also allowed us to scale with a smaller team than you'd sort of expect, I think. That also applies to legal. So like there's only five members of the legal team today for 450 people. That's quite lean. And up to a few months ago, there were only two of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so that's that's a growth enabler, too. Like if you think about it at the scale of a company, you're just hiring fewer people to do more work. Um, which sounds terrible, but but is is <laughs> its efficiency more than yeah. overworking everyone? And and then from a more like substantive perspective, I think we've it's empowered us to make some pretty bold decisions. So like mainly decisions with legal impact that weren't taken by lawyers, which I always find fascinating. So mm-hmm. how we interact with regulators, our level of transparency, and addressing some issues with legal implications you know, where a lawyer would have said, like, no, we shouldn't mention that. But then someone from, you know, an engineer will say, well, it makes a lot of sense. Like, I really want to talk about it. And then you, it turns out to be a really, really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of, yeah, some, some bold business decisions that were taken thanks to lawyers not being involved as sort of a veto power. Um, I think that that's been transformational for the business, actually. Even from yeah. the day one, like Alan had to get a license as an insurer on sort of on its first day of operating, and um, no one ever thought that a company that small could get a license from the French regulator, and and the team managed because they, you know, went and read the law. Like our CEO and CTO all like read the the code, the French insurance code, to understand what the regulator would be looking for. Um, and they chose to answer those questions in their very own way and, and not to like go to like the lawyers who would draft the expected answer. And I yeah. think that's the power to challenge the status quo, challenge expertise, and always like go back to first principles and th- think about things with a new angle, not just a lawyer's angle. That really mm-hmm. f- it fosters creativity and, and really interesting business decisions. So I mm-hmm. think that's great. Yeah, that's so cool. And it goes both ways, right? It goes for um, operational and business teams having that legal mind and also the legal team taking on the operational and business mind as well. And what a competitive edge it feels. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) So cool. Yeah, absolutely love it. I think this will be such a valuable conversation for so many teams, especially if they're working in um, smaller legal teams and especially scaling teams, I think it'll be super, super valuable. So thank you so much. Um, do you have any final points or any remarks that you'd like to make on distributed ownership or otherwise? No, I think um, thanks for hosting this. And, and, and you know, I think one thing that, that the legal world doesn't have enough of yet is is these sorts of conversations that are at the crossroads of, you know, business, leadership, legal world, like, um, I just, I just think we're under, um, we, we just don't communicate enough and we don't share enough knowledge and learnings. And, and I've really enjoyed the 
episodes of your podcasts up to now. So, so thanks for that. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Well, I came into the world of legal <laughs> through the legal tech world. So yeah. I, for me, having these conversations with people like yourself is just completely rebranding legal for me. So I hope it's mm-hmm. doing the same for everyone because it's a pretty cool place and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. Ha, 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 ha.